Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. I'm going to ask Carly to come up. She's going to read our passage this morning from Galatians 6. See what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of the Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should uh, boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And may as I walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no trouble, no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You know, if you approach Christianity like every other religion, then I think that Christianity is without a doubt the most harsh, the most cold, and even the most cruel religion. And I say that because the quote-unquote rules and expectations that Christianity lays out in front of you are not set there before us because we are to fulfill them as if we could fulfill them. They were given to us to demonstrate that it's impossible for us to be what we call quote-unquote a successful practitioner of Christianity. They're given to show us that we would never successfully be able to, based on our own merit, reach and please God. You see, the principles and teachings of Christianity can really be found to be soul-crushing for the, for the potential practitioner. I mean, how could anyone ever fulfill the just requirements of the Old Testament law? Or how could anyone ever feel anything but devastation and defeat when hearing Jesus himself come along and begin to teach and open the law up to us, culminating in the Sermon on the Mount, when he makes the statement in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Early followers of Jesus, they understood this, which is why Paul wrote to the Galatians saying in chapter 2 verse 16, that by the works of the law, no flesh is justified. Another translation renders it this way, that no one will ever be made right by obeying the law. But please hear me. Here's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. This is the difference between Jesus and every other religious founder. It's this. It's that Jesus did not come merely as the founder of a new religion, nor was he merely just the leader of a new movement. Jesus came as a substitute and a savior for all of creation. You see, if Jesus were merely an example for us, he'd crush us. But Jesus was so much more than that. He came as a savior to rescue you. You see, the law is great for what it does, but we have to be clear as to what its purpose is. What does it do? Does it justify you? Does it earn you brownie points with God? Or is the law given to expose you? And in doing so, exposing your own brokenness, does it expose your great need for a savior? Remember, as we've walked through Galatians, we've had the discussion that the law, scripture tells us, is like a mirror that reveals me to me, 
reveals the real me to me. I might be delusional, but the message of that old Disney fairy tale, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Remember, is that the mirror never lies. The mirror tells the truth. I might tell myself that I'm doing great and that I'm looking good, and then I look in a mirror. The mirror shows me the real me. It removes the delusion, and that's what the law does for us. It shows the real me to me. I might think that I'm doing great and that God must be impressed, but when I look at the harsh, cold reality, when I look at my reflection back against the law, it reveals the real me me to me, and it, it shows me all of my flaws and my deep need for a Savior. Remember, it's not just a mirror, but the law is a tutor. Remember, that's what Galatians taught us, who leads us to our need for Christ, a schoolmaster who is training up a child, showing them the way things work in the world. Remember that the law is doing that too, showing us the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in us and our great need for a savior. It's a mirror and it's a tutor, but the law was never meant to function as a scoreboard that I would point to in order to show God and others that I'm winning based on my own effort. You see, the law and grace are two things that walk simultaneously together, side by side. They're not at odds with each other unless you fail to clearly see and understand the purpose of the law. See, the law shows us, as we say often here, that we are far worse than we had imagined. And the cross, what it shows us, is that simultaneously we are far more loved than we had ever hoped or dreamed. That's the gospel of Jesus, that there at the cross, I see just how broken I am, broken and sinful and rebellious enough that God needed to come and to die for me, and yet simultaneously loved enough that Jesus was willing to do it for me. I recently made my way through some of C.S. Lewis' works, and there's a quote from one of the books that he wrote entitled Miracles that, that I just so appreciated, where he's answering the question of, well, did we merit the love of God? Here's what he said. He said, we reply that no Christian ever supposed we did merit it. Christ did not die for men because intrinsically worth dying for, but because he is intrinsically loved and therefore loves infinitely. My friends, God's love for us is not because we've proven ourselves to be useful to him. He simply loves us because this is who he is, not because of who we are or what we've done to earn or merit that love. He in his very nature is love. This then is the only kind of love that we can find deep security in because it's then the only kind of love that we cannot lose because it's the only love that we've been freely given without even being asked to merit it at all. No, we receive the love of God by grace. Past tense, we received it by grace. We continue present tense to receive it because of grace, and we will forever enjoy it into our future merely because of sheer grace. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, he wrote that the gospel is true because it deprives men of all glory, wisdom, and righteousness, and turns over all honor to the Creator alone. It's what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus when he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any one of you should try to boast. This is what we've enjoyed and appreciated so much as we've walked through Galatians. That Christianity is not some dead religion with a bunch of expectations that are being put on you that you're realizing you could never live up to. The goal was for you to realize that and turn to Jesus to receive the beautiful, wonderful grace that he gives to us. 
Timothy Keller in his book, The Reason for God, I love how he said it. He said, in Christ, I could know I was accepted by grace, not only despite my flaws, but because I was willing to admit them. Paul David Tripp, in his book entitled Lead, a book that our elder team's going through together right now, he wrote that humility is about firing your inner lawyer and opening yourself up to the ongoing power of transforming grace. Grace means we are not held to our worst moment or cursed by our worst decision. It's firing our inner lawyer. It's rejoicing again in the wonderful, beautiful grace of God. You see, we've reached the end of our journey through this important letter that the Apostle Paul has penned here that we've been studying through over the last couple of months, where he is contending for the gospel that he came preaching, the gospel of grace, which is something he's demonstrated is not some new concept or teaching. In fact, it's something he says was seen all the way back at the beginning of the book, pointing all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 15. Remember in Galatians 3 verse 6, he quotes regarding Abraham, the father of the faith, saying, just as Abraham believed God, quoting from Genesis, and it was accounted to him for righteousness sake, he says that this is how you and I should also walk, that we should recognize that our faith is what receives the grace of God, and then we are justified, we are accounted as righteous, that we do not in Christianity accomplish our righteousness through hard work and good works. No, it's something that is accounted to us. Remember, it's not accomplished. Right standing with God is accounted to us because of our faith. And God's accounting is not pretending. It's accounting on behalf of Jesus' performance in our place. We are fully accepted before God when we receive Jesus because of his perfect performance. You see, Paul's presenting that Scripture's always been clear that you can't do anything to earn God's favor or right standing with him. In fact, the law was meant to crush you so that you and I would turn to Jesus. This is why Christianity is so cruel for practitioners who approach it like every other religion, because they will not find life or hope in trying to be a faithful practitioner. They only find life and hope by turning to Jesus. By finding a relationship, something so different than a system, they're finding a person. And that's what we found, that we must instead receive the gracious gift of his unmerited favor simply by faith, not something that we've earned, not something that we deserve. You see, the reason, remember, that Paul is is presenting his case for grace here is because false teachers had come in and infiltrated the church, telling people that they had to become Jewish proselytes first, obeying the, the Jewish laws and customs from circumcision to feast days, the whole nine yards, every bit of it. Then and only then could they come to Christ to receive his grace after basically they had proven themselves through those works of the law. And so Paul says what they did is they came in, I loved how he said it in chapter one, and forgive me for the little review, it's our last time looking at this, and it's so beautiful, isn't it? But in chapter one, he says in verse seven that these false teachers came in perverting the gospel because they muddled the law in with grace. They said, this is what you need to do if you're to receive grace. Perverted, it's translated better from Hebrew, Latin, English, it's translated better reversed. They've reversed the gospel. And they, they did just that. They reversed the life-giving impact of the gospel in a person's life by reversing the order of the gospel. 
You see, there is an order to the gospel of Jesus. It's that he accepts us, and so we respond following him. The reverse of that is every other religious system, that we must give to God first before he'd ever turn our direction to accept and receive us. You know, the, the Christian narrative is so very different. But we've agreed that like the Galatians, some of us, we might have legalistic pressure outside of us. Most of us have a good legalist, little legalist living inside of us. And all of us have an enemy that wants to rob us of our freedom and joy that we've discovered in the grace of God by pushing us back under the law, enduring the harsh, empty pseudo gospel of legalism where you think that God grades on a curve and you're constantly disciplining yourself, thinking that you'll earn his favor and right standing with him. And what we found today, what we just had read to us by Carly, in these closing comments here, Paul will give a final exclamation mark. This is a final like nail in the coffin of those who are holding the law over the heads of the early followers of Jesus. And I don't know if you were picturing it as she was reading it, but I picture Paul in this moment pushing the scribe aside that he's been dictating this letter to. As he takes the pen from his hand and takes it into his own hand and writes these final eight verses, beginning with that statement in verse 11, where he says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. This is Paul's PS, his postscript, his final thought and add-on to his completed letter. Some suggest Paul's writing here with such large letters because Paul is battling some sort of an infection. Remember, he talked before about his thorn in the flesh and an illness that drove this region of Galatia. And some speculate that maybe it's because he has an infection that's impaired his vision, his eyesight, and that's why he's writing with such large letters. Regardless of if that's true or not, what seems to be happening here is that Paul here is purposefully trying to draw the reader's attention of the very first original autograph, the manuscript of his original document. He's trying to use large letters, bold prints, to draw people's attention to the severity of what he's writing, to make sure that they're seeing that this matters, this is important. This is our underlined font. This is our caps lock being used in an email. This is bold text being thrown into a message. It's him making a statement saying, don't look away. Don't miss this. This is important. Don't miss my point. And in his final point here, his closing statement, you're going to notice in this emboldened statement that he will address three different things. First, our motive. Second, our confidence. And then the final thing is our outcome. He's going to wrap up the book by really summarizing it by talking about our motive, our confidence, and our outcome. And so quickly talk with me about our motive. Because look at what he writes in verse 12. Because he gives us a, a look beneath the surface at the motive that he's trying to correct, that he's looking to address in the legalist mind. The motive. Verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Did you catch the two motives that he mentions here that that he reveals as reasons underneath, reasons behind, roots underneath uh, the, the legalist teaching? 
The first is he says that they want to make a good showing in their efforts, boasting about how they've led others into their legalism. They want to look and feel and be approved, be seen as being influential and important because they've swayed others to follow behind them. Because they're leading this new movement, this new wave of of what it looks like to be a real Christian. They love that. That's what they're drawn to. It's a self-serving practice, he's saying. Their motivation is not trying to help you. It's trying to make themselves look better and feel better about themselves. But the second motivation he highlights here is that they also are doing this trying to dodge some persecution. That they're looking to avoid opposition and persecution, which is something that Paul says at the very end of his statement, you probably noticed it, at the conclusion of this little letter, he says that persecution is the mark, or other translations render it the branding of followers of Jesus. Here they're trying to avoid persecution. By the end of this, Paul will say, I'm done hearing about this. I bear the marks of Christ. He's saying, look at me, I'm a marked man who's been branded. It's interesting, that word's used in in different contexts, that Greek word that Paul uses there to talk about how if you looked at him, you saw that he suffered. Remember in 2 Corinthians, he gives the long list of the beatings that he endured, of of all of the the harsh treatment he received, of being stoned and left for dead in the streets, of being shipwrecked. His body showed the marks, the scars of what he endured through the hands of those who chose to persecute him as a follower of Jesus. But the word that he chooses to use here for mark is a word that would be used in in an agrarian culture, uh, talking about even people having cattle out on the hillsides that they would brand. They would put their own mark on it so that you knew which sheepfold that sheep belonged in. And he's saying that persecution, me suffering for Jesus, being opposed and persecuted, is proof that I belong to him, that I'm a sheep of his pasture. It's the same word that would be used of a household servant or even of, a, of someone who served in the military who had so much loyalty either to their master or their commander that they would go and with their own free will choose to be branded So that everyone that looked at them knew you belong and you are loyal to that person, to your master, to your leader. And he's saying that the persecution I've received, the opposition that's come at me, that is proof of who I belong to. I don't want to hear any more about this. He says they're trying to dodge opposition and persecution. And I'm saying this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And if you want to know if I'm real about my faith, well, then look, I'm willing to withstand it. Now think this through with me. Because a few weeks ago, discussed some of the reasons that we may be pulled towards legalism, we see some of what Paul's writing here kind of resurface. Really what I told you a few weeks ago when I talked about things that, that I recognize, these are some of the reasons we pull towards legalism. These are the things that exist in my own heart that I'm aware of. Remember, I shared with you that it's because I realize I've existed in a system that, that works on earning through effort, that if I want something in life that I have to earn it. And grace is so different than that. It's such a different system. And so I notice in my own heart that my heart is warring against grace and pulling towards legalism because through effort, I'm looking to earn all that I want, even favor with God. And I have to repent of that. It's not just that, but I also shared with you that it's because you and I, that we oftentimes find ourselves insecure in our identity as the adopted, beloved sons of God. I know who I am. I know that I'm a failure. 
And so I can feel insecure in what God has said about me, that he has purchased me to adopt me, is the language that Paul uses when he writes to the people in Galatia. You see, I grew up in a family that would often say it, that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And when I look at the grace of God, that's what it feels like. And so I catch my heart being towards, towards, pulled towards legalism, where I want to earn and feel that I deserve what I receive from God, but that has to be repented of. The other thing I shared with you is that legalism, the reason we're pulled towards it, is that it places us in a seat of power rather than leaving us in a position of vulnerability. You see, the legalist pull that exists in us is not just because I use it to feel superior even to other people, seated, finding myself seated above them when I compare myself to them, saying, oh, well, I'm trying harder, I'm working more. They're not doing as much as I'm trying to do for God. It's that I do the same thing in my position and relationship with God himself. Where what I'm doing is I am now positioning myself in the seat of power, placing God as subservient to me, believing that he is now indebted to me and obligated to serve my wants and needs because God, look at all I've done for you. God, look at how hard I've worked for you. You see, my self-righteousness is not only used to shield me from a deep understanding of my need for God, it's also used, my self-righteousness is used and wielded like a sword that I turn against God himself. Instead of going to him as a savior, asking him to rescue me, I find myself going to God, demanding that, God, you owe me. And Paul seems here zeroed in on this very thing that the legalism of these Jewish false teachers was about putting themselves in a position of power over other people. He tells us here in Galatians 6 that these legalistic false teachers, they desire to make a good showing of themselves, he says. Not just through their own strict adherence to the law, it's that in addition to that, they're applying pressure on you to now get to their standard that they've imposed on themselves. Verse 12 exposes the issue when he says, they are compelling you to do this. It means to constrain or to force you. They're pushing you to go back under the law in order to find a way to make yourself right with God. And that's what's terribly wrong about this. And that's what's not the gospel about this. Because it's removed Jesus and his grace from this. Listen, we are saved, rescued, and made right with God because of Jesus' merit and his effort, not our own. But they're doing this, he's saying, not just, they're not doing it for your benefit, they're doing it for their own image and power. And what he's saying here, Paul's writing, saying, you're really just a notch on their belt, kind of as if they're a sharpshooter. You're like a sticker on the fighter jet of another plane that they've taken down. They don't care about you, they're just using you to make themselves feel good and look important because now they have you lined up behind them and they're saying, look at those who follow after me, us real Christians. There's a warning here, I think, that's just really simple and straightforward, and it's a warning to be leery of self-serving leaders, especially self-serving leaders who claim the name of Christ. When Jesus himself is the one whom they claim to have as their leader, and Jesus is the one who said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. But did you catch the second thing that Paul said was painstakingly obvious about their motivation in teaching and applying legalistic pressure? 
Remember, they're trying to get these Gentile converts to go under Jewish law and, and follow the customs and traditions. Do you find the other motivation there? Are you seeing it in verse 12 where at the end of it he says, they compel you to be circumcised only that they may, may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now I realize our life experience is a bit disconnected from this first century context that he's writing to, but I think there's some similarities if you'll think this through with me. Think through who were the people who are persecuting early Christians in the first century and then think through also why they were persecuting them. I mean, there's really three groups that persecuted them, which made up the whole of society. No one was neutral towards Christians. It was the Jewish religious, remember, who opposed the early Christians. And the reason that they persecuted them is because in preaching the cross, it meant that they were preaching that the Jewish religious system had been fulfilled, that it was all a shadow and a type that was fulfilled in Jesus himself. And because Jesus fulfilled it all by suffering and dying and rising from the dead, what they're really saying is that it's really the end of the whole system. That the system pointed ahead to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. And so we followed Jesus, and the Jews who were early followers of Jesus shifted their relationship with the Jewish laws and customs because they realized that the fulfillment of all that they foreshadowed was Jesus himself. And so the Jewish religious sects opposed them and persecuted them greatly. But there's a second group of people that persecuted them, and that was the authority and power in that era, and that's the Roman government. And the reason that they persecuted them was because they came preaching that Christ not only was crucified, but that he rose from the dead, proving that they had a risen Savior and eternal King. That was treason. You know, it's interesting. The Roman government was fine with Judaism because they felt like it controlled people. Do you know, though, that they viewed in the first century, you look at ancient documents, they viewed Christians as atheists because they had no temple or God that they went and they didn't have a bunch of rules that they felt that they were subservient to that they could view from the outside. Instead, they had the spirit of God alive in their hearts. They were these godless people in the minds of the culture, not because they were reckless in their behavior, but because they didn't fit the traditions of every other religious system around, and the Romans were having none of it and persecuted them because of the message of a cross and an empty tomb. There's a third group of people, and that's even the, the unreligious, even unreligious secularists have always persecuted the church as it preaches the cross because it says that humanity, all of it, with no exceptions, is so sinful and broken that judgment is what we all deserve. So society, even with a godless view, hates the Christian message of the cross. So to avoid opposition and persecution, these false teachers who are called in the first century the Judaizers, what they do is they remove the cross, Paul says, replacing it with the law to avoid persecution. You see, Christianity is just another empty religious system if the substitute of Jesus, the cross, and the grace of God, if they are removed, if they are removed, it is essentially no different from Islam or Judaism or Hinduism because it's just another offering of another form of self-salvation. It's just another version of the same thing. Uh, follow the rules, comply, be a good practitioner, and if you're good enough, then God will receive you. If you're good enough, you'll reach nirvana. If you're good enough, you'll be enlightened. If you're good enough, you'll be set free for all of eternity. 
if the cross is removed, it's not a threat to anyone because it's just more of the same. But grace is offered as the exclusive means of man's rescue in place of failed attempts at self-salvation. Don't you see how categorically different that leaves Christianity then from every other religious grouping? Don't you see then the exclusivity of Jesus and of the cross? It's why Jesus would say it in his own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, removing the cross from our preaching is still something that you'll find in the modern church, and you'll find it in at least two forms. One is in the legalist who's saying what you actually need to do is not just have faith in Jesus, you need to do these other things too. But we're also seeing a removal of the cross of Jesus as the centerpiece of the Christian message. We're also seeing it even in the progressive church in a very different form. We're just recreating the same brokenness from previous eras of church history, though. And as Paul's saying here, he says the roots of that is you're trying to dodge some opposition. You're trying to dodge persecution. That's why you're pulling the cross out of the center of it, because the cross is the great divider of society. Because the cross, Scripture says, is an offense. Because it tells us that we're wrong and broken and sinful and deserving of judgment. And the progressive church, which we do not align with, will say that the cross was only exclusively a display of the love of God for sinful man, not about a simultaneous judgment of sin being carried out at the cross. Oh, it's a display of the love of God, and people are broken, and their lives are messy, we get that. But this is not about the judgment of God being poured out to pay for my sin. But if the cross is not the judgment of man's sin, as Jesus takes my sin and my place under the judgment of God that I deserve, that then removes the need to have anyone be aware even or to preach on sin, and it inevitably then allows for people to redefine sin. In an attempt to keep from offending people, to avoid the condemning voice of cancel culture, to hide from opposition or persecution, segments of the modern church are guilty of the very thing that Scripture is condemned because they've removed the cross from the centerpiece of the Christian message. And then they are guilty of affirming and applauding people who need to humble themselves before a just and holy God. They need the grace of God to cover their sin and brokenness before they find themselves under that final judgment. Culture has told us there's no room for the cross because it's too offensive. You know, contrary to what culture says, to disagree with somebody is not to attack them. And the opposite of love is not intolerance, it's indifference. And intolerance is hardly telling someone that what they see when their mirror reflects back to them is they see a lot of brokenness. The opposite of love is not intolerance, it's indifference. It's hatred, but hatred's final form is indifference. It's not caring at all. We've removed the cross in an attempt to dodge cancel culture and in order to try to be loving, some segments of the church have said, but it's anything but loving. Because we're applauding people and saying, live your life, do whatever you want. But in the end, we're failing to bring them face to face with a holy God who loves them, yes, who who is also just and holy, and who they need to humble themselves before. See, Jesus had said it this way. He said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. 
It's a mysterious statement that Bible scholars have long been scratching their heads about because it cannot mean that when Jesus would be lifted up, so that's him on a cross, that all men would come to him to repent. It must not mean that because we haven't seen that happen in our world. So some suggest that it was Jesus' way of stating that the cross would be the ultimate dividing line in humanity. Yes, that all men would be drawn to him because all of them would be brought face to face with a harsh reality at the cross that they could no longer remain indifferent to, that they are sinful and broken and that we have a just and holy God. The cross would be the ultimate dividing line for humanity. You see, Paul wraps up the whole of his letter by talking about the motive in those who preached a form of self-salvation. And there's a push on us to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus and the cross that finds itself as its centerpiece. There's a push on us about our motives when it comes to either our pull towards legalism or towards progressivism, that we need to find Jesus constantly at the center to keep us in center. But he contrasts that, our motive, with a second thing, and that's our confidence. When we cling to the cross for salvation, he talks about our confidence. Did you see it? Where is my confidence? Where is my security found if it's not in my own performance? Verse 14, he says, but God forbid that I should boast, that I should take pride in, that I should glory in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You need to understand this would be a super stunning statement to be made in the first century. I mean, people glory in many different things all throughout the ages, but no one has ever before said, I glory in a cross. Do you understand? This is, a, this is a, a means of execution. I glory in the cross. People glory in their wealth. They glory in their credentials. They glory in their beauty. They, they glory in their influence and power. They, they glory in their possessions, but no one glories in a cross. In civilized Roman society in the first century, the word cross wouldn't even find itself coming off of most people's lips. It was beneath them. There's ancient documents that are from court proceedings that were condemning someone to death by crucifixion, and they wouldn't even use the word. The Greek word crux won't even be found there. Instead, they would use this Aramaic euphemism, which is loosely translated to hang him on the unlucky tree because it was beneath them to speak of something that was so graphic and so horrific. It was gruesome and humili humiliating for the person who had to die by crucifixion. It was so graphic and traumatic that even mentioning the world, the word had no place in civilized culture or society. It was so horrendous that the tree even that was spoken of, that a crucified man or woman would be placed on, is spoken of with sympathy. Hang on him. Hang him on that unlucky tree. Oh, the sympathy, not just for a tree, but can you imagine the sympathy you'd have for anyone whose family or a dear friend, someone that they loved, had endured crucifixion? But Christ, or Paul is now saying of Christ, he says, I glory in his cross. Do you understand how counterintuitive this is? Do you understand how countercultural this is? Do you understand that this, for the first century, people would read this and go, that makes zero sense at all. And yet Paul is saying, he glories in the cross of Christ. C.H. Spurgeon, he wrote saying this. He says, notice that Paul does not here say that he gloried in Christ, though he will do so with all his heart. 
He, de he declares that he glories most in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in the eyes of men was the very lowest and most inglorious part of the history of the Lord Jesus. He could have gloried in his incarnation. He might have gloried in the life of Christ. He might have gloried in the resurrection of Christ. He might have gloried in our Lord's ascension. He might have gloried in his promised second return. Yet the apostles selected beyond all these that center of system, that point which is most assailed by its foes, that focus of the world's derision, the cross. Oh, what did the apostle mean by cross? It is the short term for the substitutionary suffering, for vicarious sacrifice, for the offering up of the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God again. But God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That moment where God's love, yes, was displayed, but simultaneously, yes, my sin was judged and the law's just demands were met and paid for. And in that moment, Paul also says, simultaneously, sin, Satan, and the broken world system lost its hold on me. Because look how he finishes that statement in verse 14 that he says he would only boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's saying that when you identify with Christ in his cross by faith, that the world's broken system has lost its pull, it's losing its power over you. This is where our confidence is found in the cross. We do not boast in any of our own effort or earning for it's only in Christ's embrace of the cross that salvation is found. And when we do, when I do that, when I look away from myself and my best efforts, and when I look to Jesus, I find that the world is losing its hold on me. Paul doesn't say that the world is dead. He says that it's dead to him. You see, if my identity is found in something separate from the world, then I'm freed from its power over me. I don't have to work hard to earn my salvation, nor to earn some accomplishment to boast or identify in. There is nothing I must have or extract from this world to be saved or even satisfied if I'm glorying in something else. I so appreciate how Tim Keller wrote about this. He said, Paul is not saying that I must have nothing to do with the people and things of the world. Ironically, if I must have nothing to do with the world and must separate from it, then the world still has quite a lot of power over me. Paul means that the Christian is now free to enjoy the world because he no longer needs to fear it nor to worship it. We're free, freed from the entrapments of the world. Scholar Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible known as the message, he, he reads, or in the message, it reads out this way, Paul's final closing comments, this last statement. I am going to boast about nothing but the cross of our master, Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all of this? It is not what you and I do, whether we submit to circumcision or reject it. It is what God is doing, and he is creating something totally new, a free life for you. 
mean, hasn't it been beautiful and refreshing for us each week as we've walked through this little book of Galatians to be reminded that God has done everything that was needed for me and you to be made right with him. He's done it all on our behalf on a cross. I mean, hasn't it been life-giving to lift the weight each week off of our own shoulders as we remember what Jesus has done, how he's expressed his love for us? As we've said in this series, we found that grace didn't get me out of hell, though, so that I could try now to be good and work hard to earn God's favor and blessing. Because we found that we already have it in Christ. Because Scripture beautifully tells us we are just that. We are now found in Christ. You see, if you depend on what you do in order to feel confident that you can approach God because you now have his favor, then you're saying that Jesus' death was in vain because you're still having to do so very much to earn your right standing with God. You see, Paul's final emboldened statement, it addresses our motive, the motive in those who who lean towards teaching a form of self-salvation, but then he talked about contrasting it with our confidence when we cling to the cross for salvation, but he finishes just with a simple statement about our outcome. And our outcome is that we find we are a whole new creation. My friends, this is our outcome. God forbid, he said, that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails, benefits, profits, anything but a new creation. This is the outcome that Jesus is making in us a new creation. Jesus had said it in the Gospels where he said that you need to not be amazed by what I'm saying. You will have to be born again. It's Jesus at the end of the book saying, behold, I make all things new again. See, Christianity is not a set of principles and standards to make immoral men moral. It is the gracious miracle of heaven's provision of a substitute to rescue immoral men. But to saying that, that, Trevor, are you saying then that that we can or should then just stay immoral if that's not what this is about. If now we've got some get-out-of-jail-free card, do, do we now live reckless and out of control, still in rebellion against God? Well, no, not at all. Paul said when we live experiencing his gracious love for us, we find that the world is dead to us and that we are dead to it. It's like walking up with a juicy steak in hand to a lion that died the day before and trying to entice it. You see, the appetites that existed inside of us, that once drove us to devour everything in sight, looking for pleasure and purpose and meaning and value, trying to satiate that hunger and thirst, have lost their allurement. Because our hearts have found satisfaction already and no longer are hungry for more. Because what we found in Jesus is an identity. What we found in Jesus is security. What we found in Jesus can't be taken. You see, Christianity is not merely about making men moral. It's about making dead men alive. It's about making enemies into sons. And as we've learned in Galatians, and the Spirit of God working in our hearts, crying out through us, Abba, Father, making it real to us, making us to feel as though we belong. It's about making strangers into family. You see, a morality club creates competition, but a gospel community of grace creates grace-filled familial experience. 
Luther in his great commentary on Galatians, he said this. He said, the Apostle Paul ends his epistle as he began it by wishing the Galatians the grace of God. We can hear him say, I've presented Christ to you. I've pleaded with you. I've even reproved you. I've overlooked nothing that I thought might be of benefit to you all. All I can now do is pray that our Lord Jesus Christ would bless this writing and grant you the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 6.18, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. My friends, we will never graduate from our deep need to hear the gospel. Because we will never graduate from our deep need for the gospel. Because we need grace again and again and again. You can close your Bible. You know, I'd give credit to whomever said it first, but I really don't know who said it, but it's just beautiful and true and, and something I found myself thinking about in the last couple of weeks. And that's that grace tells me that I have nothing then to lose, I have nothing to prove, and that I have nothing to hide. This is what grace is telling me. It's telling me then that I have nothing to lose, that I have nothing to prove, and I have nothing to hide. See, humanity has God's original question echoing over thousands of years of history to be heard by us. His voice that was first spoken in the Garden of Eden, asking humanity that very first question, he said, where are you? And we're still answering that original question every day of our lives, moment by moment. We're answering the question, where are you? For us, we have to make the decision. Will we, in vulnerability and faith, take off the metaphorical fig leaves and allow Jesus' power and grace to be our even better covering for our brokenness than we could ever make on our own? Just know, though, that he cannot cover you until you first allow yourself to be exposed for what you are. Until you first answer him, when he says, where are you? And you say, here I am, brokenness and all. He's longingly calling you out of darkness and out from behind your facade and covering. And he's calling you into the light, not because you don't have things to hide. It's because grace means you no longer have to hide them. Because grace tells me that I have nothing to lose and nothing to prove and nothing to hide. Jesus, we receive the beautiful gift of grace. With humility, we receive it, going to you, telling you right now again that we don't deserve your care or favor. We deserve the law just to show us how broken and ugly we really are. We deserve that, to be left in that state. God, thank you that you intervened. God, thank you for the wonderful gift that you've given. You've given your own life to rescue us. We thank you for grace. We thank you that it rescued us, past tense, that it is still actively saving us, and that it's something we will forever enjoy with you. That even today we're seen in Christ, that you don't see my brokenness because you took that and applied it to Jesus on a cross. And that when I, by faith, reached out to Jesus, that I received all that was right and good about him. That, Father, you see me, a broken person, as being right and righteous. God, what a gift. Jesus, thank you for that exchange that took place 
that God, you would make him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. God, it does sometimes feel and seem too good to be true. So God, we pause again to reflect and to receive the beautiful, otherworldly gift of your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, I'd love to stand and worship with you as we give thanks for the good gift that God has given us in his grace, something we've enjoyed for months looking at in the book of Galatians together. So why don't you stand and let's worship and give thanks together. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.